Well, I think it's time for us to uh, to go over and listen to the preach. Uh, Walter is going to preach to us through Revelation. And um, can I just like recommend Walter to you? I know him really closely. Obviously, he's my husband, and and I can. I'm just watching him like just grow uh, for his love for Jesus and. I think Valdi, you're, you're such a fantastic husband, you're a fantastic father, and you you model the love of Jesus so much through to our girls and to everyone you meet. I think you're a fantastic leader. You're a great team leader. And I love it when you preach. You just explain the Bible so well. So shall we just receive Valta with a with a with a welcome heart, an open heart to what the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us through what through what Valter is going to bring today. Well, thank you so much and welcome to week two of our new series for the book of Revelation, A New Way of Seeing Jesus. I'm going to start off with a question. I wonder what has been the most impacting letter that you've ever received? Perhaps it's been a letter, a love letter, somebody proclaiming their undying love to you for the very first time. Perhaps that special letter of your child or grandchild that you treasure. Perhaps it's been more negatively impacting, like a medical report that's come back that has crashed through the dreams of your life or some sad news that you received from someone. Well, today we've arrived at chapter two and chapter three of the book of Revelation, and we're going to be looking at seven letters to seven churches. Some of it contains really great, encouraging language. Some of it is quite challenging and uh, hard to hear. But we can be assured that through all of this, there will be a specific message for us today. Now, I wonder, children, if you're listening, whether you could write us a letter at Life Church with anything you'd like. Perhaps some things that you love about church or some things you've been up to this week, or perhaps some things that you wish were true of Life Church and are not yet. Uh, we'd love to receive it, so maybe, parents, you can take a picture of it afterwards and send it to hello at wearelifechurch.uk and we'll write back to you. Last week, we started our series on the book of Revelation, looking at chapter one and how Revelation is an apocalyptic prophetic letter, how it's full of symbolism. So therefore, we've got to be a little bit careful on interpreting the details. It's uh, full of prophetic promise about the future that will shape our life today. And it's a letter from Jesus to encourage us today. We are heading into seven different letters, and you wonder, why did Jesus give seven different letters to seven churches? Weren't there more churches around to write to at that time? Well, undoubtedly true. But the reason why Jesus uses seven letters to seven churches is that the number seven in Revelation stands for completeness. And therefore, we can be assured that through these letters, these seven letters, there is a message to all the churches throughout time and history, and the dynamics at play in between these seven churches are the dynamics at play that are true for us today and have been for the church throughout history. And therefore, there is a specific message for us today to hear from what John is bringing through the words of Jesus. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to understand when we read these letters. So first of all, they're written to specific churches. So Jesus knows the churches. The letters are full of historic details that show that Jesus cares and knows this situation. And he cares and knows us very well. He's with us. In this Zoom call in your living room right now, he knows what's going on. Secondly, we can see that he writes to the angel of the churches, which means there's a heavenly dynamic at play as well as a natural dynamic. What to us seemed like just plain complication or sometimes hard work actually can be spiritual opposition, and we need to understand that. And finally, the language that Jesus uses can be quite stark sometimes. 
Now, this is very much like a parent who loves his children but sees them heading for danger. If your child ran into the road, busy road, you wouldn't go in English polite fashion, oh, please, would you consider coming off the road when you please? This might not be a good thing. You'd be shouting, get off the road, head to safety. And that's what Jesus is doing in some of these letters. He is speaking with stark language, but because he loves the church. He's not angry, he's not resentful. He is just warning the church because it's heading for danger. Now, before we dive into these letters, I wonder whether you could take some time to write a couple of things down uh, that you can see in Life Church today. Maybe three things that you really love about the church, that you value about the church, and then maybe one or two things that you wish were true of Life Church but are not yet true. Right, so grab some pen and paper, I'm gonna give you a little countdown, and then come back after that. I hope you've managed to finish that list. What we're gonna do is we're gonna be putting our list next to Jesus' list at the end of this time and see whether the way that we evaluate the church is similar to how Jesus evaluates the church. Before we dive in, we need to understand that Jesus is bringing some healthy discernment to the churches. And we have really appreciated healthy discernment from our members at Life Church. We often receive phone calls or emails, perhaps questioning things, the way that we've handled things. And it's been really helpful. At times we've had to apologize, change our cause, adapt things. Healthy discernment is good. What we need to realize is that there's also a bit of an unhealthy dynamic going on these days where people just have rants about the church and leaders through social media in a quite unhelpful way. They're criticizing. Now, what Jesus is doing here is not just having a rant about the church. He is personally invested. He loves the church. He's given his life to the church and therefore lovingly writes to address things because he wants them to change and he wants them to live in a healthy dynamic. So when we speak about the church, we need to have the same approach that Jesus does. Personally invest ourselves, making sure that we discern, not judge. Discernment means that you're waiting to put down the hammer as long as you can to believe the best in one another and to find all the details before you make up your mind. Uh, criticism means that you try to put the hammer down as quickly as you can because criticizing others make you look better. Well, that's not what Jesus is doing here and that's not what we should be doing either. What we're going to do next is I'm gonna take you on a whistle-stop tour through these seven letters to quickly summarize the content of each of these seven letters to the seven churches. There's quite a lot to cover, so we're gonna go at fairly fast pace. First of all, there's a letter to the church in Ephesus. And Jesus writes, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance, we can read in verse two of chapter two. It says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So what we can see is that these people have held on to good teaching, good doctrine, well done. And then we can read in verse four, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. So we can see that there's good doctrine in Ephesus, but a lack of love. Now, Bible knowledge is not all there is. Loving one another is what Jesus is after just as much. Then we can read a letter to the church in Smyrna. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich, we can read in verse nine. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What was happening here is that the Jews at that time trying to convince the Romans that Christianity was not just a Jewish sect, it was not part of the Jewish religion. And the result was that the Christians would start to get persecuted because the Jews were exempt from emperor worship, but because Christians fell out of their religion, they now had to fall under uh, emperor uh, worship 
and therefore were persecuted for that. And we can read at the end of verse 10, he says, but be faithful even to the point of death. So lots of commendation for the church and encouragement to continue to hold on to be faithful, even in persecution. Then we can read the church in Pergamon. In verse 13, chapter 2, we can read, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now the background for Pergamon was that they had the oldest temple dedicated to emperor worship at that time. So therefore, there's a real satanic development at play there and lots of persecution. It says in verse 13, Nevertheless, although they've held on and stood firm and not worshipped idols, it says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. And then there's also the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what's going on here? They've been faithful, but there's been compromise creeping into the church, some false teaching. Now, the story of Balaam in the Old Testament talks about a prophet uh, or kind of wizard guy that was hired by one of the kings who was against Israel to curse them. But he couldn't. An angel appeared on the road and his, his donkey kept him from safety. And then we can see that he didn't go but uh, to curse the nation, but bless the nation. What he did do afterwards is gave some advice to the king for the women of his nation to seduce the men of Israel to idol worship and sexual immorality. And what happened was that weakness came into the nation. And what we can see here is that similar teachings going on in the church. The Nicolaitans would have helped similar teachings where they start to compromise on teachings about purity, sexuality, and that was mixed in with idol worship at that time. And we can read through the church in Tyra Tyra, verse 19. It says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. They're doing well. They're loving one another. Yet, in verse 20, it says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. So we can see something opposite going on from the situation in Ephesus. They were full of love for one another, but they didn't hold on to sound teaching and doctrine. And again, a similar thing as the church in Pergamum is happening. There's weakness entering the church by compromise. Then we read through into chapter 3, a letter to Sardis. It says, I know your deeds and you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Ouch. Some stark language going on. It seems like the people at Sardis had it all together. A great worship service, a good church. It all seems exciting from the outside, but... Inwardly, it was dead. There was no spiritual life. And then we can read the message to the church in Philadelphia. It says, chapter 3, verse 8. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my words and have not denied my name. So we can see the opposite of the church inside is they were not impressive at all. They didn't seem like they had it all together, but they were faithful. And that's what Jesus loves about this church. Lots of commendation. And then finally, the letter to Laodicea. It says in verse 15, it says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one of the other. Ouch, some harsh language. They were lukewarm. It seemed like they'd been excited, but somehow they had cooled off. They'd lost their zeal. They'd lost their love. They'd lost their fervor, their first love. And Jesus is calling them back. It's a really quick whistle-stop tour through the seven letters. I would recommend that you take some time throughout the week to read these in much more detail. There's so much more to gain out of it. But now you understand the different dynamics at play in these letters to the seven churches.
Well, now's a good time to get your list out and have a look. What did you write down? And what has Jesus been speaking to the church? If you ask me what I love about Life Church, I would say something about the kids' work or our worship or our life groups. But Jesus is not mentioning any of these things. He's writing about perseverance, love for each other, holding on to God's word, uh, being uh, standing up under persecution and uh, letting that flow over into faithfulness and deeds and works. When he brings challenge, he talks about uh, lukewarmness, a lack of love, compromise, uh, being alive on the outside but dead on the inside. Now, the way that we must measure the church is not by its events and programs and exciting things, but by its spiritual life, like Jesus does. So let's look together at what Jesus is highlighting here. We can see, first of all, he brings out the, the, the theme of truth and love. Now, in Ephesus, they had lots of truth, but no love. They were like a bunch of theology students that couldn't get on together. And we can see in Tyra Tyra, they were the opposite. They had lots of love for each other, but they were kind of leading themselves off the road together. Now, if you have truth over love, it ends up with just lukewarmness, knowledge, but no zeal and love for one another. If you end up with love over truth, you end up with compromise and you just start to head off the road together. And what matters to Jesus is both truth and love. And we can see this most clearly displayed in the message of the gospel. At the cross, Jesus died for us. It's a real message of painful truth. We could not save ourselves. We were beyond hope. Our sin has kept us away from God and with all the will in the world, we could not make our way to God. Therefore, Jesus had to come and die for us. That is the truth. At the same time, we can see immense love. Jesus gave everything he had for us. When he died on the cross, he didn't do it because he was frustrated with us or because he had to appease an angry God that was disappointed with us. No, he died for us because he loves us and because the Father wanted to give everything he had for us. Jesus loves us with a never-ending love and he does so because we need it. And what we can see here is the truth and love embodied together. Now, I wonder which one do you veer to most naturally? Lots of truth, but struggling to love others, or lots of love, but compromising. I sometimes feel challenged if I speak to my neighbours and we talk about difficult subjects like gender and sexuality and uh, perhaps politics or heaven and hell to start to compromise and just leave a few things out. But that's not going to help me. I need the truth. If I'm pastoring people and I'm speaking into their lives, I'm tempted to really love them and care for them, but not always bring the challenge of truth to them. Well, I'm not really loving people if I don't also bring truth. If I embracing Jesus' love, I also need to embrace his truth. When I read scripture, there's moments where Jesus reveals things to me that are not good in my life. And I need to embrace those, not just his love, but also his challenge. There's other times where I really need to learn how to love people more. If I just bring them truth and truth and truth and knowledge, but I don't invest into their lives, then I'm just like a father who's continually pointing out all the things that's wrong with his children without showing his love. That's not what Jesus did to us. He loves us. He loves us most dearly. So let's live our truth with love and spend some time thinking which of these could you grow in or perhaps how could you grow in both? The second theme that comes through is that of lukewarmness. We can see that Jesus is really concerned with our fire for him. Now, in Laodicea, they had water coming from outside the city through pipes. By the time it got to the city, it became lukewarm. It was just disgusting. I don't know about you, but 
my spiritual zeal can often go up and down easily. I'm one minute on fire for God, then some frustrating things happen or disappointing things, and I kind of dwindle. And then I need to come back to my first love. When I started dating Simona, we were exciting, like we would have a two-week anniversary. We write each other cards and letters. We would go out after three months to the cinema to celebrate together. In six months, we'd go out for a meal, and then we got engaged and got married and had anniversaries, and then we had kids. And now we need to put our anniversary in the diary because life's gotten so busy, we might just forget it. Well, sometimes our relationship with Jesus could be like that. We've forgotten what it was like to love him first, to see with fresh eyes his amazing love for us. And when we come into a place of lukewarmness, we need to seek his fire. Be close to Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit fill us. Be around people that will do you good. When I sometimes notice we gather together in these Zoom services, I feel really encouraged by the time we worship together and listen to the preach. But afterwards, we have an opportunity to hang out together in breakout rooms. And sometimes it saddens me to kind of see 75% of the church drop off to go and have lunch and not spend time with one another. It's really important that we seek one another, to love one another, to keep our zeal hot, to seek one another, to keep our fire hot. It's so easy to just attend a service rather than be a body and a family together. So let me encourage you, make the most of these opportunities, be together, make use of the breakout rooms, make use of life groups to really tend to one another's fire. Perhaps you can read Acts 2 and see what the first love of the church looked like. They were praying, they were breaking bread, they were in each other's homes, they were, they, they, they were celebrating miracles together, they were giving to one another. This is what keeps our fire alive, drawing close to Jesus and living like that. And then the final theme comes through is that of being alive on the outside but dead on the inside. It's so easy when you're around Christianity for a little while to just talk the talk and say all the right things, but it's not real from the inside. Now, a church could become all about its programs and its events, but Jesus is measuring its life, but its spiritual inner life, not just the life on the outside. Church success is not just how good a Zoom meeting looks like or the way that we do events together, but how we spend time with one another and with Jesus. Let me ask you, how are you doing when it comes to keeping your spiritual life with Jesus alive, drawing close to him? Now, there'll be so much more to say about these things. The start of each letter, we can see Jesus reminding the people about what's true of him. Looking at him is what helps us to live out this same truth and love. What we can see at the end of each letter is that he writes a promise to each of the churches. A promise when we hold on that we will be victorious and be reigning with him. So I want to encourage you over these next few weeks, take some time to read through chapter 2 and 3 to look at these promises and what's true of Jesus in all of it. Uh, let's be uh, reminded of the truth and love that's clear through the gospel and Jesus wants in our lives of being white hot for Jesus, not lukewarm, and making sure that our life is on the inside, not just on the outside. So let me pray that over us as we finish. Jesus, we thank you that you display truth and love at the cross. And that's how I want to live my life. I pray that you help me to keep my spiritual zeal alive. Holy Spirit, will you fill me afresh today? And I want to ask you not just to be alive, talk to talk on the outside, but to be alive on the inside. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll hand back now. Thank you, Walter. That was so helpful just to know how to handle that, the truth and the love and to speak honourably about each other and, and the church. Um, yeah, why don't we take this with us in the week? 
uh, just shall we together, shall we focus our eyes on Jesus this week? Shall we not let Satan have a hold over us when we get bogged down with worries and anxiety, but we have the victory over this. We can stand against that and we can fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's do that this week together, shall we? Have a great week and keep your eyes focused on Jesus and keep sending those anxieties and worries away, shall we? Have a great week. <laughs>